0: Well, on behalf of CHESS, I'd like to welcome you to one of our April 2018 podcasts. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thanks for joining us today for what's going to be another terrific conversation. Um, I'm happy to introduce my first guest, Dr. Peter Mazone from the Cleveland Clinic Respiratory Institute, and there he's the director of the Lung Cancer Program, and he's here to talk about the article Screening for Lung Cancer, CHESS Guideline and Expert Panel Report. Peter, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for the invitation. And our next guest is also from the same paper, uh, Dr. Renda Wiener, Associate Professor of Medicine from the Boston University School of Medicine, the Edith Norris Rogers Memorial Veterans Hospital, and the Center for Healthcare Organization and Implementation Research. She's also here to talk about that article, Screening for Lung Cancer, Chest Guidelines, and Expert Panel report. So, Renda, thanks for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for uh, the opportunity.
0: So, So, you know, both of you, could you set some background, I guess, for... Um, our listeners, as, as you know that we have many listeners that that don 't have direct access to chess but download our podcasts um, but uh, you know the idea of lung cancer screening I, I would you know, I think we all would agree has become in the in the forefront of a lot of people 's thoughts. so what was the backstory here that chest needed to develop a guideline? Um, you know, you even talk about it being standard of care, so help, help, I guess, you know, for our listeners to, to get a
2: better understanding of what the goals here were. Sure. Uh, you know, back in 2011, the National Lung Screening Trial reported its results, suggesting the benefit from low-dose CT scan uh, use for screening for lung cancer. Shortly thereafter, many of the societies who have an interest in lung cancer uh, developed a guideline about whether or not to screen, who to screen, uh, based on the evidence that was available at that time. In 2013, CHEST had uh, updated its prior guideline about screening. And and for the first time, uh CHEST's guideline recommended screening for the group who uh, was eligible based on National Lung Screening Trial criteria. From 2013 up through now in 2018, there's been quite a bit of additional uh, evidence, uh, much of it related to the implementation of lung cancer screening, how to do it in a high-quality way to make sure the benefits outweigh the harms. Um, And uh, uh, because of that experience and some of the mandates that have been set on screening programs from Medicare and private insurers, we thought it was important to provide an update and for that update to both include uh, new guidance about who should be screened and uh, now for the first time a lot of um, description about how to implement a program with, with high quality.
0: Excellent, and and the the committee obviously got together, and there was a, a very large review. Of the, you know, for for those that are not familiar with the standards uh, for Chest guidelines, you know, and uh, Peter, could you you know take us through so that, that our listeners understand the 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 you know, the quality implementation that's taking by Chest and by the you know, committees for guidelines like this to under, you know, help our uh, hopefully then readers of this article understand uh, the basis for the recommendations. Either of you.
2: (laughs) I don't want to dominate. Rinda, did you want to come in at all? I'm happy to as well. Um, You know, CHEST uh, has traditionally been very strict about uh, how it develops guidelines. Uh, They are truly evidence-based guidelines. They follow um, criteria that have been developed um, for the production of evidence-based guidelines. Uh, Great criteria. Um, with with some modifications. Um, So this truly is a a very, very uh, rigorous approach to the evaluation of evidence. Uh, For this iteration of the guidelines, we're fortunate that uh, CHEST has been very thoughtful about allowing experts to at least make comments, or what are called suggestions rather than recommendations, where there isn't evidence, but where there are very important issues that Um, will really help to guide clinicians in in how they uh, go about implementing something like lung cancer screening. So in in this set of guidelines, when you read it, you'll see recommendations, and then you'll also see some that say, we suggest. And and when it says we suggest, it's uh, us being allowed to make a best estimate of what would be right based on available evidence but recognizing that uh, there is a lack of evidence to really make a strong recommendation.
1: And the one thing I would add to that is, um, as Peter said, this was a very uh, rigorous process. It involved a really a comprehensive uh, systematic review of uh, the literature to make sure that we were up to speed on all of the
0: available evidence. Fantastic. And I do like, I agree, the, the idea of the suggestion, you know, it, it's, it's, Correct me if I'm wrong, but it it feels similar to the okay, here are the guidelines and they answer the questions that can be answered with evidence, but there's also usually plenty of questions that show up in an everyday practice and it's the equivalent of someone being able to call one of you two up and say what are you what do you do in this situation and and there might not be evidence for it or the strongest evidence for it enough to give a recommendation. but like you said, the word suggestion gets used to at least not allow to not have the reader Feel like they're scrambling and stuck without any form of guidance.
2: Yeah, I I very much agree with that. I think without the suggestions in this document, I think it would be very hard for someone to take just the recommendations and know how to go about putting together a screening program um, that's going to be of of high quality. So I I think it's important to recognize that there are limitations to those suggestions, uh, that there's a lot of room for more evidence to be developed, and they may change some of both the suggestions and even the recommendations where there's some high quality evidence uh, guiding those but I think that the document is much more usable um, because we're allowed to um, make some suggestions
1: I agree and it's really nice that it's all together in one place in this guideline
0: that was, that was going to comment on that as opposed to you know oh and by the way some of the other stuff you might find useful is buried in the back or you know etc right. it's part of you know, as you're reading this logically through, you know, the the guidelines. So, so let me ask you. There's obviously been there's been changes. I mean, hence that's why you know you update guidelines. You know, otherwise the guideline could have simply said do as the last one. <laughs> so, um, and a couple that came to mind that I wanted to, to highlight, and then clearly you all may have other ones. But let's talk about the screening age cutoff. Um, of you know, how old is too old uh, to screen according to guidelines?
1: Well, that is a change that we made in this uh, iteration of the guideline. The previous version from 2013 had recommended um, following the age limits from the National Lung Screening Trial, which was 55 to 74 years of age. And in this one, we changed the upper age limit to 77 for our primary recommendation in order to be consistent with um, the CMS uh, policy, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services.
0: But not USPSTF?
1: Well, we do comment that um, the USPSTF guidelines um, suggest screening up until age 80 and that um, that may be covered by people who have
0: private insurance. Um, so what, our can primary you guys, recommend? I, right. Can you all expand in on that, though? What was the what's the rationale for the the, the age cutoff? Clearly there needs to be an age cutoff at some point, but just for our listeners, can we go through, you know, sort of what was the rationale? What was the modeling that was used or what data was
2: used? So the, the 55 to 77 rather than 74, as, as Renda had mentioned, now matches, you know, Medicare guidelines. And where they based the upper age limit of 77 rather than 74 is that the National Lung Screening Trial, the only trial that's shown benefit, started uh, by enrolling people up to age 74, and then it had a baseline and two annual scans. So the oldest people at the end of that trial were age 77. Right. So that's how they developed that upper age limit, and, you know, the nuances certainly can be argued, but we thought um, that that was a reasonable enough uh, explanation to try and match their upper age limit. The USPSTF uh, extends the upper age limit to age 80, and that was based entirely on um, modeling data, very sophisticated modeling performed by five excellent centers around the world. Um, and they, they used, um, you know, their best estimate as to what uh, upper age would still have more benefit than harm to them. Um, we didn't use that uh, age cutoff because it was uh, mainly modeling data and, and not uh, not data that was produced through uh, a rigorous trial, though the, um, the research that was done for that modeling is very much respected. But we went on to then say, you know, there are going to be people who don't meet our core eligibility criteria, who might be 78, 79, or 80, and they are known to have a high risk of having lung cancer. Um, based on one of the available risk calculators, and uh, if their provider feels that they are otherwise healthy enough to really benefit from lung cancer screening, so to um, tolerate the evaluation of a lung nodule and treatment for early lung cancer, uh, that they could be considered for screening, and that um, those comments are under the remarks section of our second recommendation. So right. we. Try to be rigorous where there was evidence and not be too complicated by giving different upper age limits than what Medicare is saying right now. But we also um wanted to be um flexible and make sure it's understood we're aware that there are people outside of these eligibility criteria who still may benefit from being screened.
0: So it was the view that the age cutoff may not be a definitive absolute per se. Uh, as the the old, you know, kind of the opposite is argued, this person may be in their 60s, but if they have so many medical comorbid conditions, because, of course, that's one of the other recommendations, that their mortality from their other diseases is definitely going to supersede any possible mortality from lung cancer, that we don't recommend screening, but we're arguing the opposite. I've got the so-called 80-year-old going on 60, you know, medically speaking, and
2: let's give them the benefits of screening.
1: Exactly I
0: think
2: that's, yeah, yeah, that's a great way to, to think about it. I think we're we're challenged in the age range where we are recommending screening to say who really is too unwell, too sick to be screened. Um, and, and we try to make a lot of comments about that. We, we don't have enough evidence to really tell you exactly who's going to be too sick. Um, There are extremes, of course, where it's obvious, but then there's a lot of gray area where where we need uh, to be more thoughtful and have more evidence. But in this upper age range, we're trying to do the opposite. We're saying, you know, these folks may be less likely to benefit because of age and combined comorbidities, competing mortality, but you may have somebody who uh, truly is healthy enough to benefit, and, and we want to be open to considering that. It seems like a lot of this always comes back to the shared decision-making, obviously.
1: Exactly. I was just about to say that, you know, I mean, the thing is with guidelines that those are, you know, sort of at a population level, these are the considerations. But in many cases, it is an individual discussion and decision between the clinician and patient um, as to what's the right choice for them.
0: Exactly. can be a complicated conversation, though, sometimes, can't it?
1: It certainly can. <laughs> yeah,
0: so really one can. other thing is the discussion about what do we call a positive scan? You know, what is a nodule versus what is shouldn't even be commented on, and, and the, the size cutoff, yeah. and and then also a discussion around GGOS. Could could both of you comment about that?
2: Sure. The uh, first uh, part of that is, you know, we all. Pretty much have a lung nodule in her chest, and and which lung nodule, based on size criteria, is big enough to to do something about, uh, whether that be just following with surveillance imaging or being more aggressive. And the evidence had suggested the higher that threshold is, so it was a four millimeter threshold in the NLST. If you made it a five or a six millimeter threshold, that you'd have far, far fewer false positive scans meaning nodules that were benign um, being found and maybe causing concern for your patients or being followed uh, closely with lots of imaging. You would have far fewer of those, and the obvious cost of reducing those false positives is you may miss or delay the diagnosis of a few very small lung cancers. Uh, over time, uh, the uh, other societies have moved towards having a higher nodule threshold than used in the NLST. Uh, Lung RADS uh, is the structured reporting system recommended by the American College of Radiology. They've moved that uh, lower limit up to six millimeters, and and that's very reasonable. Uh, You will have far fewer false positives, but you evidence has suggested you're going to delay the diagnosis of some cancers. If everybody comes back for their annual visit, The impact of delaying the diagnosis of a few small cancers is likely to be very small. Right. However, we know that one of the struggles that programs are having is in making sure patients are compliant with their annual screen. And so the concern there would be if someone doesn't come back and they had a four millimeter nodule that wasn't labeled as positive, well, that person may have a, a delayed diagnosis that truly does impact our ability to cure that cancer. So we tried to flesh out all of that evidence, and we didn't uh, leave with one absolute right or wrong um, threshold, Um, so we commented that four, five, or six millimeters seems quite reasonable, and uh, because lung RADS is uh, the dominant structured reporting system, most will probably be using six millimeters, and, uh, and we think that that's fair. It sounds like we just need to work harder on making sure that we've got good follow-up
0: and capture of patients who don't follow-up with their, you know, annual scan.
1: Absolutely, and I think that that's an area where there's still, you know, further research to be done and learning to be done from um, experience as lung cancer screening is implemented. You know, what is the best way to make sure patients are coming back um, for those uh, follow-up uh, either annual screening or follow-up of a nodule that's found.
0: Now, what about a GGO? So I go for my screening CT and there's a GGO. Um, sizing it, commenting on it, what do we measure? Do we measure just the solid component? Um, where do we go with that?
2: So for the sub-solid nodules, whether it's a pure ground glass nodule or a part-solid nodule, the concern there is that um, though they may represent uh, an early phase of an adenocarcinoma, they're often uh, much more indolent, and so being very aggressive towards their evaluation um, may lead some people to be treated for a cancer that never would have impacted their, their health, uh, what right. is labeled overdiagnosis. And so I think over time, both within screening and outside of screening, guidance on management of these subsolid nodules has um, suggested that we follow them for longer periods of time, um, but we do our scans in wider intervals because of their indolent nature. And so uh, we just kind of caution people, uh, you know, don't jump in on any uh, subsolid nodule don't necessarily be aggressive about it, follow uh, current nodule management guidelines, recognize that we're uh, dealing with a patient population that might have other comorbidities and, and these may not impact their health. For the part-solid nodules, we recommend um, measuring them based on the size of the solid component and uh, if that solid component is, you know, six millimeters or larger, taking them very seriously as being uh, cancers that should be dealt with.
1: Excellent. What about I would, comment, oh, yeah, please. I would comment that, um, you know, in general, the way that we manage pulmonary nodules, uh, we don't have really high quality evidence on that. There is an ongoing study now. Um, Michael Gould's Watch the Spot multicenter trial to try to um, give us some evidence on um, strategies for pulmonary nodule evaluation and how frequent things like imaging uh, should be. Um, so, I guess we're staying tuned
0: for, for that. <laughs> but a very valuable question to be answered for sure. Definitely. Now, one other thing that always comes up is, of course, uh, you know, take lung cancer screening out of it. One of the largest sources of lung nodule evaluations is the abdominal CT, right? The, I went for a kidney stone and found out I had a lung nodule. So when, now that we're actually looking at the lungs on purpose, we're finding lots of other things. And what do we do about that? Calcified coronary arteries, for example, uh, comes to mind. Um, and so where are we on guidance and guidelines for what to do uh, about some of these sort of non, non-pulmonary, non non-scared-about-lung cancer findings?
1: Well, I think that's a great question, and this is something that we are seeing all the time in practice, um, but it's an area where there's not, um, you know, great guidance in place now about what should be reported um, as an incidental finding on a lung cancer screening scan. And as a result, there's a lot of variability um, from radiologist to radiologist and program to program about what gets reported or labeled as a a significant other finding and how those should be evaluated. Peter has actually uh, published um, some data on this from his program at the Cleveland Clinic.
2: Yeah, I think that we've, uh, you know, we've tried to provide some guidance and recommendations uh, uh, to raise awareness that this is going to be an issue when you start your program and and you need to have some strategy for it, Um, engaging other specialties uh, who practice with you, cardiologists, endocrinologists, and so on, um, to understand what their guidelines are and, and, and them perhaps to help provide algorithms for how you manage these incidental findings either for the program to handle or for the ordering provider to handle. Uh, We think uh, people uh, who are screening need to be aware that this will come up, and you need to have a strategy to deal with it. In our own program, we found about one in eight patients that we screened had a finding that uh, led to further evaluation, either testing or consults. Uh, A large portion of those were coronary artery calcification, and uh, this was managed based on algorithms developed by our uh, specialists. Almost half of the uh, revenue generated from screening came from the evaluation of these other or incidental findings. <laughs> That's interesting.
0: Yeah. Do you know offhand um, from that data, you know, the, the, say for example, let's go to coronary calcification, um, which can obviously mean many different things did Did our lung our, our lung cancer screening actually lead to someone or a frequent amount of patients actually having a coronary intervention, or just a realization that maybe I need to take a better better job of taking care of my hypertension,
2: you know et cetera? Yeah, it, you know I think it, it's going to vary based on what threshold you use to kind of refer folks on. Yeah. Our cardiologist guided us that though we don't screen using coronary artery calcification screen for coronary artery disease, They felt that uh, if our radiologists quantified it as moderate coronary artery calcification or greater, that they should visit with one of our cardiologists. we looked at around 300 patients, 325 or so. One of the 325 who had a lung cancer screening exam ended up with a bypass surgery, and two, I believe, ended up with uh, coronary intervention, uh, a stent placement. Uh, probably another ten or so had uh, had a coronary cath like, yep. uh, done. So, yeah, it, it was more than just adjusting lipid uh, lowering agents or hypertension drugs. Uh, there were some interventions that occurred. So, some nice fringe benefit of lung cancer screening. <laughs> That's the challenge. It's hard to know: is it truly a benefit, or well, true. are we adding cost and harm to those who never needed to know about it? At least. In principle, we're trying to screen only asymptomatic patients, not people who have new shortness of breath or new chest pain that should be evaluated um, for that symptom, not, not necessarily screened. Uh, so uh, I don't know, and that's a great question to try and answer in the future. Are we truly helping more people, or are we just uh, adding cost to uh, the screening program? Those were the three things that I
0: that I was most struck by. There were obviously lots of different changes, but what have I missed? What other sort of components of this set of guidelines, you know, the update, um, are, you know, markedly different from prior um, or that we want to highlight more of? Maybe even if there isn't a the difference, but something you really want to highlight.
2: I think that probably the most controversial uh, part of the guidelines, uh, something that you've already touched on a little bit, um, but just to make another comment about it, would be our second recommendation, and and that's the recommendation uh, as written, that we shouldn't be screening patients who have a high risk of developing lung cancer based on a risk calculator, but who don't meet the standard eligibility criteria. And as Renda mentioned, that comment is directed at that cohort, at the population level, saying that because those risk calculators are also calculators for the risk of dying of another disease, they're also calculators that could predict who's going to have a lung nodule or who's going to have a higher risk of biopsy or of resection or do less well after curative intent therapy. That there just isn't enough evidence to screen that cohort, uh, and so that's why we have that recommendation. However, we comment quite clearly in the remarks that we um, recognize that there will be some people at high risk of developing lung cancer who don't meet our standard eligibility criteria but who may still benefit from screening because they're still healthy enough to do, you know, to tolerate the evaluation, to tolerate the treatment. And so I'm always a little nervous that the remarks would get lost um, in someone just reading the recommendations. And so I would just want to highlight that uh, that component of the recommendations.
0: Brenda, what do you think? Any other?
1: I I totally agree with that.
0: Well, and I, and, I, and I suppose one thing, is, you know, at the very beginning of the document, there is the disclaimer, of course, it says chest guidelines are intended for general information only are not medical advice and don't replace professional medical care and physician advice. I mean, it's guidance and it's based right. off of literature, but as you've just said, that, you know, in the comments, there, there clearly can be exceptions to this, you know, and, and but, you know, we've got to have some amount of a framework to provide guidance to our patients and there may be exceptions in that shared decision making, but that, as a general rule. This... Is where we should at least begin the discussion?
2: Yeah, I think that's fair. The other thing we tried to be sensitive to is, is a recognition that not one size fits all in terms of how you develop your screening program. So some screening programs are going to be quite centralized, which we've you know defined as meaning the program is going to determine whether someone gets screened or not. They're going to do the shared decision making visit, they're going to follow all the results and manage those. And at the other end, there's a decentralized program where the program may track quality, uh, but the referring provider uh, does the shared decision-making visit, does the smoking cessation counseling, and follows and manages all the results. And we are not saying that one or the other or anywhere in between uh, those strategies is correct or incorrect. You can have a high-quality program however you structure it, however, the implementation uh, has to understand what components need to be part of the program to maintain high quality. So, if the shared decision-making visit is being done in a centralized program, uh, then then the providers who are part of that program will do it. If it's going to be in a decentralized program, the program should still be responsible for making sure the ordering provider has the tools to do an effective shared decision-making visit. Um, So that was one other part of our recommendation guidance that that we tried to be sensitive about.
1: And one thing I would comment on that uh, to elaborate a little further and make an additional point is that, you know, um, we said right up front that we consider lung cancer screening to be or should be the standard of care for eligible patients, but we know that it's been slow to be adopted um, in the U.S., and um, is underutilized. So we hope that these guidelines um, with both the concrete re- recommendations about who should be screened, but also the suggestions about how the different ways that screening programs can be implemented, whether it's centralized or decentralized um, to maintain quality, will help um, people to see this as something that's manageable and doable and that will um, you know, help us to be able to provide lung cancer screening to more people who need it.
0: Agree. Definitely need to continue to expand access. hmm And follow-up. <laughs> right, right. So um, this will be a loaded question, um, but I was wondering if both of you could at least hint at um, what efforts do we have to try to improve the pool of people that we screen? and what I mean by that is is that the clinical criteria we use are still leading to us even with the age cut or sorry excuse me the size cutoff of what we call positive or not, there's still a significant amount of false positives, and that from the NLST, we know many of these nodules will not actually be malignant. And so what efforts can we do or do you see in the future to sort of enrich the pool so that we are screening more people that, you know, quote, need to actually be screened as opposed to just using our
2: clinical criteria.
1: Well, I think that that's something. A,
2: go ahead, Rhonda. Yeah.
1: I think that um, will come along with improvements in the tools that we use to screen, whether it's improvements in imaging or the addition and incorporation of biomarkers um, into the screening process as those become. Uh, you know, ready for prime time use. I don't think we're quite there yet at this point.
2: Yeah, I think it's so, a great time for early lung cancer detection that, that the success of the NLST has led to uh, all kinds of interest in this space from researchers and industry. and And I'm optimistic that in the future we'll have tools that help us to truly determine someone's uh, risk uh, beyond what our clinical risk calculators can uh, that may expand the pool, that we may have, uh, you know, better uh, imaging techniques, radiomic techniques that will help guide us about which nodules we should be more or less aggressive about. I think it's a, a great time, and uh, none of these are, are ready for primetime tools, but they're not Pipe dreams anymore. There, uh, there's right. very serious work with um, resources behind that work uh, to really move this needle, and so I'm optimistic that that will see progress.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's a very exciting true.
2: time. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm sorry, Brenda. I was talking. I, I overspoke. So please tell me what you were saying there.
1: No, no. I was just saying. I totally agree. It's a very exciting time for the field.
0: Excellent. Well. Final thoughts, guys. We've been talking for a little bit. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, final thoughts here? This obviously was a, a, a very large effort by, by the two of you and as well as your co-authors on this set of guidelines. So first, thanks to both of you and everyone else on the panel who wrote
2: uh, this guideline. But um, any final thoughts? I really think this was, this was a great team effort. And others who aren't on the call deserve a lot of uh, credit for putting this document together. Uh, this is an area that has uh, a lot of experts, very well intentioned, who have slight differences in opinion. And so, what we're putting out there is, uh, you know, the best that we could come up with to synthesize the evidence and come up with really practical tips for high-quality implementation. We recognize uh, that there will be other opinions about some of these issues, and uh, with with more evidence and and uh, research uh, will see this area evolve and improve over time
1: I was going to say the same thing I think that um, you know and Peter really deserves a shout out for his effort in, in leading um, uh, all of us and developing this guideline um, and sharing the process um, but I agree that this is the the best evidence that we have right now but We do expect, you know, there's a lot of work going on in in lung cancer screening and and early cancer detection, biomarkers and so forth, as we just mentioned, Um, so I think this is going to be an area that continues to evolve, and um, I look forward to seeing what comes in the future.
0: Fantastic. Well, both of you, thanks so much, This this was great, and then obviously for our listeners, um, you know, without a doubt, uh, the, the guideline is an extensive document and, and you know, obviously expands dramatically on, on this conversation and, and in other areas that we didn't directly touch on. But uh, if anyone listening, uh, get a copy of this. It's a, it's a fantastic read. And, it, and it, if nothing else, if you don't have a lung cancer screening program, it should invigorate you to help develop one at your institution. So um, thank you very
2: much, both of you, for your time. Thank you. Thank you.